Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers across the province and territory. This is the first episode of season three of Writing the Coast, and I'm so excited to talk about the books shortlisted for our annual prizes. The titles we'll be discussing this season really span so many different stories, perspectives, genres, points of view, and more. Each one highlights the amazing talent and creativity in BC and Yukon, as well as the important and exciting stories that are part of the province and territory. Speaking of these stories, let's get to my guest for this episode. So my name is Daniel Ramadan. I'm a Syrian-Canadian author, public speaker, and an LGBTQ refugees advocate. Uh, I arrived to Canada as one of the first Syrian refugees uh, back in 2014, and I published my first novel, The Clothesline Swing, in 2017, and Salma the Syrian Chef is my first children's book. Danny's book, Salma the Syrian Chef, illustrated by Anna Braun, is a finalist for the 2021 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. To get a taste of this beautiful book, here's Danny reading from the beginning of the story. Salma watches the Vancouver rain from her apartment window in the Welcome Center. It is different than the sunny days back in Syria. She still can't pronounce Vancouver, but her friends tell her that her ways of saying it are more fun. Vancouver, Salma says to Mama. But Mama is making dinner. Vandurar, Salma rolls her R's. But Mama won't look up from her English homework. Vancouver, Salma finally succeeds. But Mama is busy calling Baba back in Syria. Baba will join them in Canada soon. Salma's heart aches like a tiny fire in her chest when she thinks of Baba. She wonders if Mama's heart is burning too. Mama used to giggle with her friends in the refugee camp. It sounded like the ringing bells on the older boys' bikes. And now, after a long day of job interviews and English classes, Mama barely smiles when tucking Salma in. Maybe if Salma can make Mama laugh, Vancouver will feel a little more like home. Salma draws Mama a clown balancing on a ball on top of an elephant. She tells Mama a knock-knock joke about bananas and oranges that she learned in language school. She even hides behind the fridge. She jumps out and screams, boo! But all she gets is Mama's sad smile, full of love, but empty of joy. I want to make Mama laugh. Salma rushes into the blurry room and almost crashes into Nancy's chair. She's been sad for a long time. When was the last time you saw Mama happy? Asks Nancy in her broken Arabic. Salma imagines a waterfall of Mama's many sad faces since they left Syria. How about you draw a picture? Nancy says, drawing helps me when I forget my good memories. 
Selma looks at the colorful crayons, her memories of mama's smile shine like a beautiful rainbow over that waterfall. Selma draws her home back in Damascus, a yellow house with a garden surrounding it like a necklace. The garden had a tree with green leaves and a bird's nest with three little eggs. She colors the living room walls purple. Were the walls really purple? Nancy asks. No, Selma says, but it's okay to add new colors to my own memories. She draws Baba at the table. Mama carries a freshly made dish of full chamois, a big smile on her face. Selma can't bring Baba here sooner. She can't rebuild their old home, but suddenly she knows what to do. Tell me about Salma. Where did this book start for you? So um, I, I wrote children's books and children's stories when I was back in the Middle East. It was uh, one of the side hustles that I had back in the Middle East. Um, and I really enjoyed the, the, the art of it. I really enjoyed the way that you have to navigate telling an entertaining story to a child, but also giving big themes and concepts in a, in a package that the child would understand and, and have empathy towards. Um, and when I came to Canada, I, I think my art in general just matured because of the experience of being a refugee myself and coming here. And it really helped me see um, a lot of the intersectionalities and the challenges that uh, refugees face. In 2018, I met an editor at Anik Press and we had a fantastic conversation about the possibility of writing a children's book. And she was like, yeah, sh you should just, uh, Claire, her name is Claire. She, uh, she was like, just, just write us a beautiful children's book. And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then of <laughs> course, I went back home and I spent six months agonizing over the fact that now I have to write a children's book. But then one morning I woke up and I, I had this craving for Syrian food and I wanted to make a Syrian brunch for my family and friends, just like have a, have a group of friends over. Remember when we were able to have friends over? So I texted my friends, hey, can you grab this and can you grab that? And of course, uh, it ended up the, the, uh, the WhatsApp group ended up being so long of like people being like, what is the name of that thing that is in Arabic this, but in English that? And how do you find vava beans? And where would you find sumac? And uh, this kind of olive oil or that kind of olive oil and stuff like that. So the brunch that was supposed to happen at 11 ended up happening at like 2.30 because how much time it took to get all the ingredients, to put the, the food together, something that is so easy to do back in Damascus, uh, took so much more effort here in Vancouver. And by the evening, I was, I was ready with the first draft of Selma. I just thought that that experience, as, as simple as it is, offered a space for me to tell a good story, to tell a simple story about uh, a child hoping to recreate a concept of home, uh, but also all the challenges that, that that child might have as they're navigating uh, bringing a piece of their home back with them here to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. I loved that, um, those food memories and the connection that food has to family and to home, but also how it played a role for Salma in building a new family and a new community as well. Can you talk a little bit about how food memories played in this piece, but also do they play out in your other writing as well? Do you find yourself kind of connecting to those nostalgic food memories? 
It's it's really interesting because I actually never was obsessed with my identity as Syrian until I had to move so far away from Syria. And and that is something that a lot of immigrants would would tell you the same being being like yes you come here and it's a beautiful big country fantastic lived experiences here but at the same time you do miss parts of uh, of home and and one of the very few things that you can recreate here that belongs back home is food and i think for me to be honest in my writing in the clothesline swing there are recipes that i i wrote into the clothesline swing there's a recipe that i wrote into the foghorn echoes uh, a book like uh, butter honey pig bread by francesca ekawasi is all about food and the relationship of the main characters with food from back home so it is it's clearly something that we as immigrants have as a shared experience something that both reminds of reminds us of home and bring that nostalgia but also bring us a sense of pride a sense of uh, feeling that we can we can belong here and we can offer something of us of who we are to the mainstream community around us of course when i came here to canada personally the first couple of years were quite difficult because i didn't have a community around me because i didn't know a lot of people and even the people that i knew had difficulties connecting with i had difficulties connecting with because they don't know what it means to be syrian what it means to belong to that side of the world so i thought that that's something that should be included in some of the syrian chef that's something that uh speaks about how a home is not just the walls that are around you it's not just the food that is on the table it's the people you're sharing the food with mm-hmm. and that was definitely one of the big themes that came across in this book like you talked about the challenges of writing for kids that you have to have that great story but those big themes as well and that idea of home really comes across in the book how did you was that tricky for you to navigate like that because it's such this interesting idea of home is something you can look at from a million different angles and see it in different ways how did you kind of zero in on that for kids so that it came true for them for that age at that reader level mm-hmm. i just did it it was very simple it's because i'm a genius writer i, <laughs> <laughs> I mean i didn't want to say that right <laughs> i know right <laughs> no, actually, it was quite difficult, I have to say. But um, one thing, two things, actually, that that Claire um, uh, Caldwell, who is my editor at Anic Press, really helped in putting into the book. Uh, the first thing is I didn't want, she taught me not to teach, to talk to the children as if I'm talking to children. It, the whole idea is to navigate a big concept with the children on their level, but with an understanding that the big complex uh, complex topic can actually be uh, explained and presented to the child. So I didn't try to dumb it down for a lack of a better word. I just tried to have a conversation that is of a lived experience that is genuine and authentic that the child would connect with. So that is something that I learned from Claire. And the other thing that I learned from Claire is agency. A child who's reading a book where the main character has a lot of agency is a child that is going to connect with this book because children as they're growing older specifically we're talking about five six years old who are going to hear this book or to read this book with their parents are building their agency are looking to ways to express themselves and to to create the uniqueness that's who they are so um between 
who I am and how I am giving them the, the, the information and who they are and how they are receiving this information, I think that was my way into writing a good children's book. Yeah. The other theme that I really liked in uh, Salma was the intergenerational um, relationships. And I think that's something so important that I've seen a lot, actually, well, not a lot, but more in children's books, these kind of interesting relationships that kids have with um, older people around them. And of course, there's so much uh, research now that shows us that how important those relationships outside mm -hmm. of family are. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, those relationships that you included and whether you were really thinking about inter those intergenerational intergenerational relationships <laughs> in the book when you were going into the writing? So the intention of creating the community around Salma was uh, that I wanted to create as much of a diverse community as possible. I have uh, a gay couple in the book. I have an older uh, grandmother type uh, character. I have a 16 year old who helps her help Salma across the street. I have uh, folks who are Canadian, born Canadian, and I have a lot of folks who are born elsewhere. So, and I have uh, uh, women who are wearing hijab and women who are not wearing hijab. So my, my interest in telling this book was to create this diverse community around my main character. And I thought that I had access to that through the shared identity that everybody, except for the Canadian born character, that I had with those characters. So all of those folks are immigrants and refugees. And that's a shared identity that I had with them. And when I arrived here, when I see the communities of immigrants and refugees, I see that diversity in them, in ages, in color skin, in uh, gender identities and sexual orientations. So that is something that I really worked hard into including into the book. That is something that I intentionally included into the book. But then there was moments where Selma needed to navigate difficult emotions. So she has an emotion of frustration at one point when she's not finding all of the ingredients. The, she has an emotion of anger when she's like, this is not working as easy as it would have been if I was back in Syria. And I think I needed wisdom in the narrative itself. I think I needed to tell a story that uh, includes characters who bring beautiful wisdom to this uh, child and nothing like an older grandmother type person to sit you down and to teach you right from wrong to be honest it just it felt natural it felt normal so that relationship to be honest was built quite genuinely was built organically I would say in the into the book it wasn't that I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to build an intergenerational relationships between my characters. I just created a diverse community and I allowed each of those characters to present themselves the way that I think a family would present itself. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about diversity in children's literature. It's something that's come up before. I used to work at a, at a library um, mm -hmm. in the teen and children's department. So this was something that was often on my mind. And I remember hearing that, you know, there are more characters in children's books that are either white or animals than there are BIPOC characters. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and whether you see that changing with more books coming out now, including diverse characters. I think it is quite interesting. There was a, a New York Times article um, a couple of months back 
where only 1% of the books that were published in general, across all generals, uh, had a Bibark person as a main character. Just 1% of all the books that were published from 1960 up until now had um, a Bibark character. And that is that speaks to the communities that we're living in. That speaks to the integrated white supremacy that we have in our society. It doesn't speak about publishing per se, it speaks about every aspect of our society where we are pushing forward one voice over everybody else. We are buying books by one kind of folks over everybody else. And is it changing? I hope so. Uh, Salma is out, which is something that I'm, I'm very proud of. And that's something that the publisher came to me and were interested in navigating with me. The same publisher has uh, multiple books that are from Bybok authors, by Bybok um, producing Bybok characters, and that in itself is beautiful. Is it changing rapidly? It's not. It's changing extremely slowly, and we still see the titles in book awards, in uh, in libraries, in catalogs. We still see that characters who are white, characters who are animals, bears, and and rabbits, and all of that are more represented than people of color. Do I have a solution to this? No, I don't. I can't solve white supremacy today. I wish I can. (laughs) Here, let's solve white supremacy as we're speaking on this podcast. But I think think the fact that Salma has done so well over the past year, I am so proud of Salma. I'm proud of the, let's talk numbers. I'm proud of the huge number of sales that Salma has done over one year. That shows that we as a community are starting to realize that we need to do something about this. Uh, the parents are buying books like Salma teachers and librarians are buying books like Salma's. So that speaks that there is a market and that's something that publishers will respond to uh, because when publishers see that people are willing to put their buck where their mouth is, publishers are going to seek people like me, to seek people who are... Um, queer authors, uh, authors of color, trans authors, two-spirit authors to tell good stories. Yeah, and I think it really is the people, it seems like it's the people on the ground, the parents, like you said, librarians, teachers, who are really, I think, making those interesting, those choices that are pushing the bar and saying to publishers, okay, we don't just want white characters or mm-hmm. straight characters. We want people who make up, the, who are the students in the classrooms. Like mm-hmm. that's the reality of it too, is that, you know, there are little people in these classrooms who don't see themselves in those picture books. And so it's important to have books like Salma the Syrian Chef or Birdsong by Julie Flett or all those books mm-hmm. to, to show them that they belong in these stories as well. I completely agree. And like, over the past year, since Salma was released, I have done a lot of virtual visits to classrooms across Canada and North America, to be honest. And every single time, there's one or two uh, students who share with me right there. We're talking about five, six-year-olds who are like, I moved from a different country. I, I came here uh, as a refugee. There's a lot of, <laughs> I ran into a lot of Syrian children who are who are so happy that I can say marhaba to, and they say ahlin, and, and it speaks to them. It speaks to them that there is, uh, that Salma says an Arabic word here and there in the book. It speaks to them that uh, their their journey is, is, is presented on the page. 
And that in turn speaks to the teachers, to the librarians who are doing a fantastic job, to be honest. It takes, it's, <laughs> I honestly haven't been as celebrated in my career as an author as when a teacher invites me to a classroom. Teachers just are so thankful that I am there. I'm like, I'm just in my office, in my home. That's totally cool. And they're like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And they celebrate the hell out of me and makes me feel so welcomed. It is it is fantastic. I, 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 I appreciate it quite a lot. Yeah. What were you feeling when, you know, Salma came out? And I'm sure something you were looking forward to is going into schools and sitting in classrooms and sharing the book. Um, was it hard to kind of have that adjustment to, you know, doing it virtually and hopefully you get to do it in person one uh, day? I mean, to be honest, the hardest part was the fact that WestJet owes me $4,000 in airplane tickets <laughs> across North America for events that got cancelled. <laughs> uh, so yes, I had a book tour that was planned and I was supposed to go to Toronto, to Calgary. I was supposed to do, go down to New York and Chicago. I had a big, big, big tour plan. And sadly, none of that happened. And of course, for the first six weeks of the pandemic, I was sitting in my living room feeling depressed. And then one day, I would say like two or three weeks into the pandemic, I was so freaking bored, so bored. So I went live on Twitter and I read the book without actually asking my publisher or anything. My publisher came to me later and was like, you shouldn't have done that. Maybe you should have asked this first. But then I went live on Twitter and I read the book and I just like shared it with people and it went viral. So we ended up going on uh, next chapter. Uh, teachers were sharing the video with their students and stuff like that. So it ended up going quite viral. And I honestly, I appreciated that I had the tools to be able to do this. Like I, I know how to edit videos. I know how to choose the right hashtags for my videos. I, I have a big following on Twitter. So all of this really truly helped. And I ended up visiting a lot of um, uh, classrooms. And to be honest, like think about it this way. Yes, I missed the festivals. Uh, we ended up doing a lot of panels on online and stuff like that, which was great. And I ended up hanging out with amazing folks, to be honest. But also a tiny little school in Sudbury, Ontario, who wouldn't be able to afford to put me on an airplane and fly me across the country, managed to uh, get me to come in and visit their students over um, the course of an hour. And it was uh, quite educational for myself and for the students. So. That is something that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do if it wasn't for the virtual reality that we're living in. So I'm trying to look at the half full side of the glass right now. Do I miss touring? I do. I miss my friends. I miss my um, other authors. I miss stale coffees in hotel rooms. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> but I, at the same time, I'm... I'm trying my very best to adjust the reality that we have. And hopefully next year we'll have another tour and I have another book coming out next year. So hopefully that would be um, the tour book. Yeah. Tour both of them. <laughs> yes. Just That's walk true. around and be like, this is my yeah. new book, but also. <laughs> also. <laughs> In this hand, I have this book. <laughs> I wanted to ask about the illustrations, and I know sometimes that process is out of an author's uh, hands when they're working on a picture book, but 
Um, what was it like for you to see um, your book that you had in words come to life in these illustrations? And I know that Anna worked on some really beautiful mosaics, and I wondered if you could talk about the mosaics as well. Uh, sure. So uh, indeed, me and Anna, we uh, we communicated through the editors and the the art department of Anna Press, my publisher. And actually, she did a lot of research, and she asked me for a lot of uh, pictures and things that I can I can offer to help her create the feel of the Syrian uh, characters and the other characters. Uh, so, for example, I have a niece uh, who looks exactly like Salma, <laughs> or actually, Salma looks exactly like her. And if you looked at the gay couple in the book, one of them strangely looks like me because he has the white shoulders. <laughs> and the big beard and stuff like that. It's really funny. But also, this is, uh, I know that podcast people, hey, hey, child. I know that podcast people can't actually hear this, uh, see this, sorry, but this is my backgammon. I bought it from Damascus. As you can see, it is covered in mosaic art. And that is the art that I sent to uh, Anna Braun. She, I sent her pictures of the mosaic piece. And I, I told her that this is an art that we really value in Syria. And she was inspired by that. And she ended up creating all of those um, frames around the, the pictures, which, is, uh, which I thought was brilliant. Do you have more picture books, children's books planned? Uh, yes. So I'm working on a follow-up for Salma at the moment, uh, hopefully an early reader chapter book. Uh, and it's called Salma Builds a Home. And it still navigates the concept of home, but it also navigates uh, a bit more mature of a, um, of a topic, which is the uh, culture shock of her father when he comes, finally joins them in Canada and how different his experience in Syria than his experience in Vancouver. And how will Selma navigate that understanding her father's culture shock and helping and easing the culture shock for her father? So... Um, hopefully that is something that you will see soon. I just finished the first draft and it's in the hands of the agent and the, uh, the editor at the moment. <laughs> thanks so much to Danny for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you'd like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find information about the shortlisted titles, as well as details about upcoming events, like our Storied series. In June, Storied will feature Patty Flather and Leonard Linklater, winners of the 2020 Borealis Prize, who will be chatting with Tara Boren, author of The Pit. We also have an exciting opportunity for readers to write letters to Joy Kagawa and Julie Flett, who won the 2020 Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence. Julie and Joy will write back to the first 100 letters they receive, and you can find more information about that on our website. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Aslan Hunter, whose book, The Certainties, is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.